Good morning, everyone. Thanks, babe. That was, I needed that. <laughs> For some reason, sometimes I show up the morning of and I'm super calm and at peace. And other times I am so nervous. Today is one of those days and I don't know why. <laughs> Thanks, Gordy. It may be because I'm going to do... I'm going to kind of take a different approach than I have the past couple times. I'm still going to be centered in James and moving through James, but I'm kind of going to do it through an Old Testament story. And I kind of came across this story due to what I was seeing coming out in these passages of James, and I was kind of inspired to lean on the story to put flesh on the wisdom that James is bringing us. And so if you guys will just bear through, I'll kind of be bouncing between James 4 and 2 Samuel. And this is going to be the story of David and Bathsheba, which is a little bit of a spicy story, a little bit of a, it's just, it's a big scandal. <laughs> so bear with me. I think it will be fun. I'm going to try to have fun with you guys up here for this morning. Uh, we will start with my title for this morning. Seth, you can throw that up. The Tension. Um, I, I debated on what my title was going to be, but the tension seemed to kind of fit a lot of different aspects of what we're going to be talking about this morning. And it kind of fits the story. There's a lot of tension in this story with David. So I'm just going to pray try to slow my heart right down a little bit, and then we'll dive in. God, I just thank you so much for this morning, for every person who is here. I know I thank you for that every time, but it really is a blessing. No one has to show up. No one's forced to walk through these doors. And yet, their presence is a gift. And them being here is a blessing. And God, I just pray that together we can find what your spirit has for us, that you can move through me and work through me, and that my ego and pride and anything else that can get in the way of what you have for us can just step aside. Maybe that's what the nerves are for. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I just thank you for this morning, and I pray that you be with me and be in this room with us. Amen. All right. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll just go ahead and dive into the story. Then it happened, or in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So this right here, you know, it seems pretty basic, but there's actually a big clue in this passage. David is supposed to be at war. I don't know why. Apparently when the new year comes along, maybe the, the, the ground starts to thaw. The kings are like, okay, this is the time for the kings to be with their people. I don't know the historical context, but David is supposed to be with his men. And he's avoiding it. 
That's, and we, we don't know exactly why. The text doesn't specify why David's avoiding going out and being with his men, but he is. Uh, verse 2. Now at evening time, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So, instead of being where David's supposed to be, he was in bed all day. He was in bed all day, he's probably feeling restless, and so he gets up and starts pacing the roof. Now, there is two perspectives on Bathsheba's part in this. One of them says, she knew he would be there, so she went to bathe to, like, lure him in. I personally don't think that's the case, and I can, I'll tell you later on. I think she probably thought he was gone, so she didn't know he would be up on the roof pacing. Anyways, um, back to David. I think this also cues us in that he's depressed, that David might have been really depressed from the lack of purpose and there's something going on inside of David that is bigger than we're maybe able to see. Now, James 4.1 says, James starts out by saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? So this whole tension, this external, what causes the going on tension, like fights and quarrels, is it's already going on inside of you. The tension is already battling inside of you. And David is obviously avoiding this tension within himself. And I think a big part of it is He's missing out. He's avoiding the flow of life. He's missing out on what God kind of has for him to do. Um, and he's just kind of living by default right now. He's avoiding his call, his duty. And in doing so, he's fallen out of the flow. And it's making him depressed and restless and anxious. And so... I just want to point out one thing. It's going to feel slightly like a tangent, um, but I just think it's really important, especially when we're in the Old Testament text, to take note of this and at least be aware of it. The obvious thing is that this is a different time, culture, historical context. The not-so-obvious thing that I think we miss out on is because this is a very different time in history of God untangling humanity's mess, God has to meet us where we're at. Which means in that time, war and battle was something God used to help humanity move forward. Um, it doesn't mean that God's necessarily endorsing it. David's supposing to be at war doesn't mean God's endorsing war necessarily. Just the same as how he is not endorsing having multiple wives or to even have a king ruling his people. It is just something God is using to bring us closer to his heart and bring us further. 
Um, for example, um, right now, Kaya is learning words in the multiplication mode. I mean, the amount of words that she comes up with every day, Kaya's my little two-year-old. Jack and I will look at each other and be like, I didn't know she knew that word. And it's just like constantly coming out. And other times, she'll say something and I'll just like look at her and I'll be like, gosh, I have no idea what she's trying to say, especially if I don't have the right context. Um, <laughs> so the other, it was a couple weeks ago and Seth is hanging down with the girls in one of the rooms and there's this little slide. And Seth comes up and he's like, Abby, I gotta show you this video. And I was like, he looks slightly concerned. <laughs> and he comes and he shows me this video. And Kaya's going down the slide. And every time she goes down the slide, she's saying the F word. And Seth's like, do you know your daughter knows the F word? And I was like, no. Like, how? Like, I do not go around saying the F word. And I don't know anyone that I'm with who does. And so, I watch the video, and all of a sudden, it dawns on me. I'm like, Seth, Seth, she's not saying the F word. So I think it was just the week before we had our birthday party. We had taken her to uh, the pool in Cottonwood Heights, and at this pool, there's a slide that her and River went down pretty much the whole time we were there, and it's a frog. So the frog is like what you sit in, and then it has the tongue that's the slide. So Kaya's sitting on it going, frog, 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 and it does not sound like that. <laughs> so because I knew the context and I understood what Kaya was actually saying, and because of where she's at developmentally, like in her growth, me trying to correct her is not going to get very far. It's actually kind of pointless. And so. It's alarm. I would hope someone like Seth or anyone else who's going to hear her say the F word. And I would hope it would actually be concerning. Just how when we look back at what people did in the Old Testament and what we even see God like telling his people to do or allowing his people to do, it's alarming. It's alarming. In this day and age right now with how far we have come, Seeing what's happened in the Old Testament turns a lot of people off. Turns people off of the Old Testament, of even the New Testament, because sometimes the language in the New Testament can turn us off. And, and then it just turns you away from God completely. But we don't have the bigger picture. This whole time, God knows, ah, yeah, my people are saying the F word. My kid's going around saying the F word, but now's not the time to correct it. That will come later, so I'm going to wait. And so whenever we're looking back, I just, I know this is a little bit of a tangent from the, like, the main point, but I just want us to think about that. And I think it's really helpful whenever we're reading Old and New Testament. So God will know, God will know when to correct us from saying the F word instead of frog. Um, okay, back to the story. So David's avoiding his duty and seemingly depressed and restless, and now he sees this woman bathing. Uh, verse 4, then David sent messengers and had her brought. And when she came to him, he slept with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned 
to her house. I don't know if it was up there, but it's okay. <laughs> um, was it in store? I may have I may have gotten them out of order. Anyways, have you noticed that when you fall out of good habits and good alignment with life in general, it's easier and easier to make poor choices, but more make one bad choice, and then it makes it a little bit easier to do it more, and you just kind of fall out, like you lose sight of like why you were even doing good things in the first place. And so David, already kind of on this spiral, sees a chance and takes it. And in this time, it's really easy for him to get what he wants. And Bathsheba, having no choice in the matter, fulfills his request, cleans herself, and they both seem to move on. It starts, it's kind of a seemingly innocent interaction for that culture and time. Until a few weeks go by, I'm assuming a few weeks because I can't, I, I can't imagine you could find this out very quickly, and she sends word. Verse 5, but the woman conceived, and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. David is not going get to so e- get off so easy after all. But he's going to try. So David's like, oh, gosh, this little thing is turning into a thing. Um, what can I do to fix this? Oh, I'll send word to Joab and have him send Bathsheba's husband, they said it was Uriah, home so that David can, or sorry, so that he can come sleep with his wife. And by the time it's obvious she's pregnant, People will know that her husband was home, and so, you know, no one will suspect a thing. But that plan fails as well. He brings Uriah home. Uriah, being an honest man and not wanting to take in the pleasures that all the rest of his men are not able to while they're laying out protecting the the covenant and sleeping in tents and away from their wives, says, no, I'm not going to go home. David's like, ugh, gosh, now what? <laughs> well, he's got to fix this. He doesn't want to face it. And so he continues to try to write his, oh, he's not writing his wrong. He continues to try to cover up what he did. And so, um, yeah, so in James, let's see. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, kind of getting out of hand. And it kind of goes from this, like, what was just a lapse in judgment, first turned into, they kind of term it like a power rape, an unwanted pregnancy, trying to deceive an honest man, and then it ends up in the death of not just one, but several of his most loyal soldiers. Because he tells Joab to just send Uriah to the front of the lines so that he'll get killed. And when that happens, it ends up taking more than just Uriah as well. Joab's response to David, I'm not going to read it because, you know, I don't want, I, we don't really have time. But, like, he's, he's having to tell David, so this guy died. This plan failed. This this attack uh, didn't work, and he's kind of like, but then at the very end, tell him that, you know, Uriah died so that he'll 
he'll, you know, he won't get mad at me. <laughs> and so the messenger comes, tells David all that. And David doesn't even care. According to Joab's response, I can tell that David would normally care. He was expecting David to be furious. But because David is so relieved that this whole thing is seemingly taken care of, he doesn't, he doesn't give a mind. He doesn't care. And it's so gnarly because he's so determined to cover up his shame that he ends up ruining a lot of people's lives in the process. Um, James 4.4 4 says, means you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. David chose to do things the world's way. Everything David did was acceptable in the world's terms. In that culture and time, a king could order a woman to his room and order a man to be killed discreetly, and no one questions it. But in doing so, he did things in opposition of God's design. And whenever we stop following God's design, we kind of I talked about this in the last section of James. They're obviously very connected. Um, but when we're living by default or design. And so when we fall out of design, it, consequences follow. It's not always God that's making them happen. And a lot of the language says, like, God says, now this will happen, or I'm going to make this happen. It's almost more like he's kind of just warning us, when you stop following my design, things are going to happen. And this is usually, this is what they are. Um, next verse, James 4, 5. Or do you think scripture says, without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in? I love this verse. Now, there's actually nowhere specific in scripture that it says this, so I don't know if it's just like an overview or if um, it maybe is from one of the scrolls that didn't make it into the final Bible. I'm not sure. Um, but anyways, despite David cheating on God with the ways of the world, God still longs for David to return to him. God continues to call David out, keeps pursuing him, because he knows that beneath the turmoil and the darkness is the spirit he planted there. So God's not losing sight. David is messing up huge, but the light not losing sight of the person he made David to be and the light and the spirit inside him that God originally purposed, the good in David. But before, but before the light can shine from within, and Jackson's kind of talked about this in his last two sermons about the light, but before the light can shine from within, it must first expose us. Strip our pride, bring us to our knees in humility, or more accurately, humiliation. James 4, 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This is from Proverbs, that little quote. Or, and another way to say it is, the proud go against God. If you think about Seth's sermon last week, the big moment is when one of the guys is like, you guys, if this is of man, 
It'll just fall away. No need to fight it. It'll just dissipate. But if it's of God and you're being self-righteous against it, you are fighting God. You're fighting God's will, his way, and his people who are bringing this to the world. So you're going to fail. <laughs> if this is of God, you're going to fail. And you're just fighting God. Um, but the humble will find favor. They will find the flow of the kingdom, of God's goodness. And I love it because David experiences both in this story. And he experiences both the curse of his, what he did, and God brings his prophet to kind of tell him, like, these are all the things that are going to happen because of what you did. There's going to be a lot of murder. There's going to be a lot of rape. There's going to be a lot of pain in your family line because of what you cast into motion. Um, but David, I'm actually going to share this little section. So God is not done with David. God's grace is more. And so he sends his servant, Nathan, to David. Um, verse 1 of chapter 12, if you want to go there, we're just going to read all the way through. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there are two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and he grew it up with him and his children. And it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, this description of, and we'll go, and I'll, I'll go in that, but like, this is the description of Uriah and his wife. That's why I think Bathsheba did not try to lure David. I do not think she played a part in it. I think she was simply just, she couldn't refuse a king, so she just complied. Because it seems like they had a really special relationship. But the poor man had nothing. Oh, yeah. So go ahead and go to the next one. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. First, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, not in this case, you are the man. Now normally, people say, you're the man, that's a good thing. Not in this case. You are the man. The man that you're burning in anger against that's what you did. That's what you did. This is the moment of humiliation. This is the moment when David sees what he has been denying and avoiding. This is the moment when everyone holds their breath. This is like the ultimate tension, part of tension in the story. Because you're like, 
David just condemned himself to death. And he didn't even realize it in the moment, but he did. And it's at this point where the tension has been stretched so far. David's just been like avoiding, fighting against it, trying to fix it, not looking at it. And it's just been stretched to the very end. It's like, okay, this thing's going to either break or release. And David chooses to repent. David is going to experience public shame, humility, and the loss of his son, and all these other things. But because he responded to God, he found the flow of life again. So there's this tension, and David chooses. He chooses to repent in this moment. And this is a turning this is such a big turning point for David. Um, and we'll keep going, and I'll explain, I'll explain why. So in James, in James 7, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's this quote I found that says, The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Oppositional energy is a word that only creates more of the same. Submit is a word of softening, of letting go, of humbling oneself. When we soften to God's way, we are no longer fighting or fleeing. But by doing that, we are resisting the devil. You don't beat, you don't beat an addiction by focusing on not having that drink or by focusing on not doing that thing that you're trying to break from. Oppositional energy only creates more of the same. But it's by focusing, you beat it by focusing on the re and replacing it. So you take your focus away from the thing and you focus on what you're replacing that with, something better. Verse 8, it says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Now, I think we can already assume God is always there. But he's just waiting for us to turn to him. It's like what Gordy was saying when it's like, you're turned away from God. God's right behind you. All it takes is for you to turn around, and you'll find that he's right there. Come near. And he will be near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Go to the next verse. This verse. <laughs> I love it. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What a weird thing to tell someone. Like, why would you, why is that, instru the instruction is so countercultural. Since we, since we could understand our parents, we have been told, stop crying, look at the bright side, half cup full, you know, like, we have been told to be positive, to, to not avoid it to our feelings, to not feel sad, to not feel angry, to shove it all away, to avoid it, to avoid it, to avoid it. Don't feel your pain. Stop looking at it. Just, it'll, just look away. It'll go away. 
We've been told that over and over again. And what I think is so beautiful about this story is that's what David's doing the whole time. He's avoiding the pain. Something's going on. I don't know what. I don't know what. But something is obviously going on in David, and he's avoiding it. And look what happens. His life starts to fall apart. And I think from this story, this experience, David learns to grieve. He learns to feel. He learns to look at his pain. And I think we can say that because have you read the Psalms? It's this struggle, it's this balance, it's this wrestle between praise and lament. Praise and lament. He learns how to feel his deepest pain. And from that, he learns how to feel his deepest joy. They aren't separate. We say one's on this side of the spectrum and one's on that side of the spectrum, but they're not. They're together. They go together. It's a paradox. At the very beginning of James, it says, uh, happy are those who suffer. Blessed are those who suffer. What a paradox. But there's beauty. There's beauty in paradox. When the light and the dark come together, what happens? Sunsets, sunrises. When sun and rain come together, what happens? Rainbows. Paradox is beauty. And if we can learn to hold those controversial things together, if we can learn to sit in the space between them, we're going to find the flow of life, the beauty, the laugh in life. The last uh, verse 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Fall. Fall as low as you can fall. Don't avoid the darkness. Fall into it. Fall into it because when you fall into that darkness, when you finally acknowledge it's there, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to raise you higher than you ever were before. David was far from perfect, and yet history calls him the king after God's own heart. And he did a lot of gnarly things because pride moves us to use whatever we can to hide our shame. There's this quote, I don't think I copied it, but it says, the key to breaking the power of pride-fueled shame is the superior power of humility-fueled faith in the work of Christ and the promises of Christ. <sighs> David messed up huge, but God refuses to stop pursuing him. And he keeps calling him out. And so this whole internal tension, David yeah, David is hiding from something, something even bigger than his duty as king to be on the battlefield with his men. He is hiding from his duty to his soul and to God to enter his internal battle, which was merely manifesting itself by avoiding the external, external war and his duty to his people. Now, it feels unrelatable because we're not kings. We don't have to go to battle in that sense. But I can relate to this because I did this for a long time. 
I stuffed my pain, denied my anger, was blind to my destructive shadow that hurt a lot wakeful. In high school, I look back and I, I know I left awake. I left a wake of pain. I was hurt. I, I, looking back at me in high school, I was a miserable human. <laughs> but I denied it, so I didn't know it at the time. But looking back, I'm like, wow. And the wake of pain that I caused to my friends, to my family, to a lot of people, was pretty massive. And it's, I was pretty, I was, I was just so lost. I was lost in the pain and the self-preservation, and I just didn't care enough to right my wrongs. I just patch or ignore and just do what David did. I just, I just did what David did. And then God sent me a love letter. He sent me a Nathan. He sent me his love letter. God knew exactly what I needed to best experience himself. And it just so happened to come, and I mentioned this briefly in my last sermon, but it just so happened to be that he sent me Jackson. And I met Jackson, and I made a vow, and am now deeply committed to loving this person no matter what. Not even on paper, but like in my soul. But unfortunately, that, that promise, that commitment didn't stop my pain from leaking. It kept leaking all over him. And when things would happen, especially in this, our first year of marriage, things would happen where I'd get triggered and I'd turn and take it out on him. And I think because I had made this commitment and I, I knew I loved him and I cared and I didn't want to keep leaking all over him, I, I finally was able to like see what I had been doing this whole time. Like, I was finally motivated enough to just, like, see what I was doing. And it's so crazy because, like, uh, I felt like I had no control, out of control. If I would have had control, I would have had a better response. But it felt like I was out of control when I'd get triggered. And it only made me feel more mad and more shame and make me want to hide. There is multiple times I was so triggered and show, so ashamed of my reaction. I'd walk out the door and I just, I, I wouldn't even tell him I was leaving. I'd just start walking. And the further I walked away, the more it hurt. Because I knew what I was doing was not going to solve the problem. I was high. I was, I was fleeing from the tension. And by fleeing from that tension, I was creating it tighter and tighter and tighter. And... Uh, what made all the difference was that Jackson didn't retaliate. He didn't let his first, second, or even third response be his guide. Rather, he did the very unthinkable thing. He apologized. <sighs> For that thing that he did, yes, but like, I'm overreacting to it. It's not this is just my time bomb, this is my little bomb, and he just happened to step on it. He didn't know, and yet he apologized for it, and it broke me, because it was so humiliating, and it was hard for me to, like, hold that space, and so it's really hard to describe 
what would happen in those moments, but it was really just Jackson sitting there holding presence for me. Long enough to start to let go. I'd be fighting, I'd be fighting against my shame, I'd be fighting against my anger, and I'd just be so mad at it that it would just make it more and more like intense. And I remember it took a few, like I'd be in it for a long time. And what started to kind of shift it is Jackson would look at me and say, babe, just feel. You don't need to fix it. Fight it. Just, just soften to it. Just let go. And the second I do that, the second I would stop fighting and just allow myself to be in whatever was there, I'd like be able to like look him in the eyes and I'd start crying and he'd start crying, and it was the tears. It was the tears, the letting go, that started to heal. It started to heal me. And those things that would trigger me over and over and over, by the way, this didn't just happen one time with this one thing. It was like, it kept happening. And each time we would run into this, and each time I'd have to find a way to like let go and break down. And then all of a sudden, eight months go by, and I look back, and all of a sudden I notice he did that thing that usually would like hurt me, for, and I would have this big overreaction to it, and all of a sudden I'd be like, babe, you just did the thing, and I'm okay. Something we did worked. We didn't fix anything, we didn't talk anything out, we didn't solve the problem, we just cried. And healing. Um, someone once said, or I was listening to something, and he was talking about how they actually have studies that prove there's toxins in tears. So when you're crying, you're releasing toxins. So like there's a physical healing that happens as well. And I just can't help but think like David, David's story is so similar. He found healing for himself when he could hold both the praise and the lament. Turn his laughter to mourning and his joy to gloom. So, what if, maybe, for today, seeking the kingdom looks like us just not hiding from our pain, not projecting our pain onto someone else? It's there, scapegoating our pain as someone else is. But it's allowing what's there and what's hurting to come to the surface and we've heard this word a lot, but I kind of want to, like, bring some meaning to it. And finding solidarity with each other. Holding the space to allow all of us to see our guilt and feel our wounds together. To find the still point between the tensions and holding it to find healing and balance for both sides of the conflict. That's all Jackson did for me. He made my pain his pain, or not even his pain, our pain, and he made it our problem, not my problem, and he continued to just look for the light in me and call it out. I'll be like, how did you not react? How did you not just want to fight that wall? And he said, I just, I just wanted to look at you, and I knew there was the you in there that was trying to get out. And it was just so barricaded by all the pain and protective mechanisms. And I just wanted those to fall away so I could find you again. And that's all God is doing with all of us. 
just wants us to give us give his our pain so that he can call out the us he created us to be that's always there and if we can see that in each other if we can go whoa that person has a lot of protective mechanisms they are fighting against everything they're denying everything they're hiding he must be in a lot of pain what if someone instead of reacting to their reactions and fighting against their energies just called out what was already there, hiding beneath, that already wants to come out. Um, this last verse of James says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in destroy on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is what happened to David. This was David's humiliation point. When he finds himself deemed to judge the person in this story, the thing he hates about the rich man, he hates because he hates that that's inside of him too. And so when we are infuriated by something, pay attention. It might, you might be trying, God might be trying to draw attention to it. But that's something that we're doing. Or, and I've seen this too, we hate something so much, we become it. We become the thing that we hate. And it's, it's a slippery slope and it's always paved with the best intentions, but it happens. Um, to close, I just want to do this, uh, and Jackson, you can come up. There's this quote that, it's called the Contem Center of Contemplation and Prayer, but they will send articles, and this is just a little quote from one of the articles. Um, Resurrected people are the ones who have found a better way. By prayerfully bearing witness against injustice and evil, while also agreeing compassionately to hold their own complicity in that same evil. It is not over there, it is here. It is our problem, not theirs. The risen Christ, not accidentally, still carries the wounds in his hand and side. We won't eliminate our pain. We have been hurt and we have hurt others. The question becomes, how can I know the greater truth, work through the anger and still be a life-giving presence? That is the third way beyond fight or flight, which in a certain sense includes both. It's fighting in a new way from a God-centered place within and fleeing from the quick egocentric response that last God can hold such an act together within us. Seth, if you just saw up that last slide about the tension. So I typed in the word tension and the thing that came up, the image that came up the most was these bridges. And I thought, that's weird. And the more I looked at it, I realized it's the tension in the ropes that's holding the bridge up. So when we hold the tension, we can create a bridge between both sides and bring things together. Instead of polarizing and choosing a side, we can bridge between the two when we hold the tension. You guys will just close your eyes in prayer. God, I thank you so much for this morning. 
God, I, I just want to pray over the pain in this room, over the barriers, the protective mechanisms that we have built over a lifetime because we've been hurt. And God, I just pray that you can draw near enough, that you can show us you're close enough, that you can send us our individual love letters to show us what you're trying to teach us, what you came here to do. God, Jesus came here to share in our pain. He simultaneously shined the light on our guilt and said, I understand you. I forgive you. Can you forgive yourself? God, I just pray that we can learn to forgive ourselves, to see what we've done, and then to let go and to just fall on your yoke so that you can lift our burdens because you say you will. And I just thank you so much for this morning. Amen. So this song is our story, our story, <laughs> not just mine and Abby's, but our story, um, and it shows up everywhere, and I think we needed something really specific to help us through, which is that story. And I think that's what we learned. I mean, even just looking at it, right? You have a vertical tension, a horizontal tension, and Jesus stood right there. And he stood in between religion and stood in between politics, stood in between those who loved him, those who hated him. And what he was was a forgiving victim. And so as we sit with this last song you know this is like the oxygen that can just be in between everything 